have changed, yet the truth remains the same. Enlightenment Radio, a movement around the world, is with you 24 hours of music, live broadcast, and a mystical approach to the teachings of Christ at themysticalvoyage.com. tea party whatever time it is it's time for tea party time for the word time for god time out for god that's what that's what i say we all need it so much stuff has bombarded us from the world we need some god every day some scriptures turn your bibles to Matthew 15. We're going to share tonight something called truth versus tradition. This is my favorite thing. This is what I do. Really. When you really look at it. This is your host, Misty Guide, Enlightenment Radio. High above up here in our space station, Genesis 1, Mission Control. And we have uh, some, uh, let's see what they're doing. Oh, no, that's not the one. <laughs> okay. So, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 15. Truth versus tradition is uh, is always something that has fascinated me. It, it keeps me amazed, really, at how someone can sit there and read a verse, say one thing, and yet you believe another. You believe what the... Tradition teaches, church teaches, which ends up in different denominations, different divisions. That's the reason why there's so much uh, split denominations. And usually a tradition starts with an apparent contradiction. So if you have what's an apparent contradiction is usually due to an error in one of three or four things. It's an error in the translation. It is has been used before. How it's been used before, you can tell what it means. And also, our understanding. We just may misunderstand what is being said. For instance, one of the biggest things that uh, is misunderstood is the woman at the well. I'm just going to wing this one. A man named Bishop K.C. Polite came out of India, and uh, he was one of Dr. Weirwell's favorite uh, Eastern teachers. He had a, a book, matter of fact, called Light Through an Eastern Window. So there are Orientalisms, they call them, in the Bible, figures of speech, all kinds of things, that if you don't know them, then you're going to be uh, in, in the dark, so to speak, or kind of cloudy as to what this means. Well, when Jesus told this woman at the well that, uh, yeah, I know you've got, uh, you had six or seven husbands. I, I don't remember right now. I don't recall. But a woman, she's coming to the well to draw water. They wouldn't let, and the, the tradition teaches she was a harlot. Well, that's no... Eastern custom, he translates this, that doesn't mean anything. She couldn't draw from the well of Jacob's well if she was a harlot. And that's not the case. He said the man you now have is not your husband. Well, she had a man who she was engaged to properly. And he goes through it and comes out that it takes away the uh, 
the barriers that you would have as to, wow, she got a bad rap. <laughs> Until you read uh, Bishop Casey Pillai's Eastern interpretation of Orientalism. Same way with a lot of translations. And uh, so let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll go to truth versus tradition at the tea party. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus Christ for everyone here listening this morning in the USA or around the world or in India. And I thank you for understanding, for clarification, and that your word can live, that we can take these scriptures off the pages and put them in our hearts. Let God's word sink in our heart, that he does love us, that he does want us protected, that he does want to believe us. And then what it says, we can hear his voice. I'm going to do a teaching on that. Hear his voice is written all over the Bible. And so, Father, we just thank you for peace, joy, and your hand of protection around everyone here that we're all fed spiritually, and physically and soulfully. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Now, before I start with John 15, Matthew 15, you know the temptations of Christ, he gets a little tempted before he, we get there. I don't want, you don't have to turn here, I'm going to read it. But in Matthew 4.4, uh, 4, famous verse where the tempter came to him, and he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made to bread. But he said, Jesus, it is written. There's the key right there. He says, it is written. That's the first thing I say when somebody approaches me and says, well, do you believe in this? And I says, well, it is not written. That what she said. Do you believe in the Trinity? Okay, no. Well, it is not written. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So if that's how Jesus looked at things, that's how we are to look at this. If it is not written, or if it is written, that's what we are to go by. I mean, that's the first thing I ask a person when they ask me something that doesn't fall in line with what I believe. I don't believe it because it's not written. So that's where the uh, scribes and Pharisees, they're the same way, same back then, same as they are today. So Matthew 15, Matthew 15, then came the Jesus, Matthew 15, Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, who were of Jerusalem saying, why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the, of the elders. For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Well, isn't that, isn't that something worth gathering around for? Judgmentalism. But he answered and said unto them, why do you also transgress the commandment or the word of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, who honor thy father and mother, and he that cometh curses his father or mother, let him die that death. But you say, whosoever shall say unto the father or his mother, it is a gift, but whatsoever thou mightest, he profited by me. Now you get down here and he says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, thus people draweth near with, unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for the doctrines, the commandments of men. So here you have night and day. You have the commandments of men, you have the traditions, and the traditions have no efficacy, no effect. Tradition has no effect, no power in them. And that's usually how you can tell the difference between truth or tradition. Truth has the power in it. And truth attracts and truth will draw people onto it. And when you're teaching tradition, it can't hold you. 
It cannot hold you, will not keep you. That's why people fall away from this. They come in and get involved with the church or the scriptures and their teaching tradition. It's not going to hold them. Or, or if that's all they want is to sit in a pew every Sunday, and that's our comfort zone, they're not really seeking the truth. So a couple examples I could use for our understanding and tradition. For instance, traditionally taught, I like to take the word saint. What most people think or the Catholic Church teaches what saint means. According to the understanding of Catholicism, a saint is defined as the following. People who have lived exemplary Catholic lives and who the church declares worthy of a special honor, they have a saint and a prayer for every day and all occasions. Their goodness and holiness have been witnessed by others and ruled on by the church through a special process. The saints have been chosen and assigned to represent particular values. Saints are friends of God who have proven their sincerity and reaped the rewards of their good lives. They are in heaven and have the power to help us. They can speak to God on your behalf, and saints offer intercession. Well, that belief is, has its roots in paganism. When you become born again, say by God's grace, you are a saint. We are the saints. If you're a born-again believer, you're in the church of God, you're a saint. That's just simple as that. It's a, it's, that comes under the headline or category of our understanding, what the word saint means. Saints are referenced in the Bible as being alive on earth, not dead, and then alive in heaven, or and then alive again in heaven, making intercession. A saint simply means a holy one. The holiness is given by God and is spiritual, based on grace, not on works or some special achievement. For instance, Romans 1, 1 through 9. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets and holy scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by a, or via the resurrection from among the dead. That's a great declaration that he was declared to be the Son of God because of his resurrection from among the dead. That assured it, that sealed it. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience of faith among all nations for his name among whom all ye are also the called of Jesus Christ. <laughs> there it is, black and white. I was with a bunch of people one time in a group. They were just talking, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been called. I'm called to do this. They, they started laughing. I said, what are they laughing at? You call, you, how do you know you're called by God? Well, it says right here, among them who are also called of Jesus Christ. It's written that I'm called. It is written that you are called. Believers in India, you're called. So if God says that you're called, and if it's, that it's written, then you can claim it. You are called by God. To all be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be what? Saints. Called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through the Lord Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So Paul opens with Romans with the richness of Jesus Christ being declared the Son of God via the resurrection from the dead, among the dead in the text, and those all that believe that are called of Jesus Christ, called to be saints. He is speaking to those who are alive and that he prays for them. Nowhere in the Bible does Paul exhort to pray to dead men or to dead saints. We are to pray for the saints who are still alive. So for God, uh, verse 9, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make 
mention of you always in my prayer. Paul opens to the Corinthians with a salutation. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, under the church of God at Corinth to them who are sanctified, which means set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So who are the saints? We're the church. Every member, every born-again believer who's in the body of Christ is a saint. So God bless you, St. Robbie. God bless you, St. Ronnie, St. Keto. <laughs> You're all saints. You're not dead, are you? No, we're in the land of the living. You can hear my voice. You can speak God's word. We're in the land of the living. The dead can't do anything. They can't pray. There's other verses pertaining to where the dead are. That's a whole different topic. And uh, with all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. An apostle is called by God, Ephesians 4.11. The church of God is the spiritual body of believers who are saved by calling upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10.13, and are sanctified, set apart by God, called to be saints. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints. So how do they get this, that a saint is a dead person, or a saint is someone who is a... They, they, you know, today, they, to get it to sainthood... I don't think Mother Teresa is a saint yet, is she? But they're going to try to put her through this long process, and then they'll finally vote to see if she's good enough to be a saint. And this is just not written. It's not biblical. It's not scriptural. Uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all the church epistles. Listen to this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints that are at Ephesus, to the faithful at Christ Jesus, Grace be to you, peace, and from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints. I'm, I'm putting all these uh, opening salutations in it. And to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace be unto you. We pray for each other and for the saints while we are still alive. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. We give thanks to God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you for this cause. We also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you. This prayer language that God given of the saints that are alive is what makes intercession. Verse 27, He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Well, the saints are us who are alive. We're not praying for dead people. According to God's will, isn't that perfect? Many people so often wonder, am I doing the will of God? Or what is the will of God? Speaking in tongues is doing God's will perfectly. You're making intercession. You don't know what's wrong with that person or what the problem is, but God does. So you're making intercession, perfect intercession when you pray in the Spirit. Saints is simply holy ones in the Greek, sanctified or set apart by God by the gift of Holy Spirit, not by a council or a man or a religious denomination. Romans 15, 16 and 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Here's another working translation according to the Greek text. Jude 1, 14 there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. All believers, saints, have the spirit of Christ within them, making available direct spiritual contact or mediation. There's no special outside dead people we are to pray to. We have the power within us now. Let's handle a couple of these verses that may have led to this false ritual of praying to the dead. Jude 1, 14, first the lesson. Thessalonians 3.13, 2nd Thessalonians 1.10, and Revelations 5.8. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, 
prophesied, or that's the future, that these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints. Execute judgment upon all the they that are coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be admired in all them that believe. Let's take a station break. The spice expands consciousness. Expands consciousness. The music you are listening to is coming from Enlightenment Radio. Sound waves that lift your consciousness, enhance your mood, and transcends time and space. Visit our website at enlightenment-radio.com where you'll be guided each level of transformation to become an enlightened one. So I said in the beginning, all tradition and all apparent contradiction is either in the translation, in our understanding, how it's been used before, and as one other I forgot to mention, it's checks and balances. So you have checks and balances. You have all these scriptures pertaining to saints and saints, what is a saint, but you don't have any of them declaring that they are dead and that you pray to them. So that's one example. Truth versus tradition. Truth, knowing the truth, what a saint is, it empowers you. It gives you the power, you knowledge, and you're not speaking a lie. Okay, so there's another one. This is very easy, too. The uh, lineage of Mary is in Matthew 1, 1 through 18. And I'm going to read through it. I know it's a little tedious to read all these genealogies. But the Bible is about seed, and that's how they kept records. That's how you knew that you were a Jew, that you were the lineage of what generation and who your ancestors were, which was significantly, it was huge to these people. It meant everything, what tribe you were with, what seed you belonged to. And so in the beginning of Matthew gives the lineage of Mary and Joseph, her husband, or It gives the lineage of Mary, not Joseph, her husband. A lot of varying theology and conjecture is put forward regarding this, but God's checks and balances shows otherwise. This is where I'm going to share a check and balance with you. So Matthew 1 through 18. The book of generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Two, Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. So those are naming down the generations. Remember I taught a few weeks ago, are the Jews extinct? There's nobody that keeps records today. They don't know their seed. They don't know their heritage. They don't know who they're, they don't know who they are. And Judas begat Phares and Zerah and Thamar, and Phares begat Aresim, and Aresim begat Aram. And Aram begat, excuse my... Uh, Translation here. Amidab, and they begat Nathan, and so forth. In verse 5, Solomon. Solomon begat Boaz and Reachah. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon. We know that. And of her that had been a wife of Urias. That's right. That would be Bathsheba. And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abia, and Abia begat now I'm going to go on down and I'll get to verse 11. And Josias begat Jeconiah and the brethren about the time they were carried away into Babylon. Okay? That's important to note that. I'm going to get to the point. The point is checks and balances. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begat so-and-so. And we go on down to where it says, verse 15, and Eliad begat Elazar. Elazar begat Nathan, Nathan begat Jacob, 
And Jacob begat Joseph. Here we go. Verse 16. Here's where the problem lies. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away of Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying on away of Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on the wise. When his mother Mary was espoused, means that she was already married to Joseph. Don't let these people fool you. They were married before they came together. That means consummated their marriage. You had a time when period when you were to be married, but there was a time also when you came together that was anoint, uh, allotted you or a time for you in your marriage. She was found with child by the Holy Spirit. The text divides the generations into 14, okay? So the total from Abraham to David is 14. From David to the carrying away of Jeconiah is 14. But from Jeconiah to Jesus, by this record, is only 13. So something's messed up somewhere. The apparent contradiction is in the translation. Remember, it says, and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. Well, what's Joseph got to do with the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Joseph wasn't his father. He was fathered by God, the Holy Spirit. So let's read on. From David, okay, so the apparent contradiction is in the translation. Because when you get to Jesus, it's only 13. It should be 14. The apparent contradiction, rather than research deeper, the theologians like to guess, and the unbelievers like to point out the error or discrepancy. It's very simple. See, this is tradition now. So if, if they can't explain it, if they cannot get it straight, they have to create a theology around it to back up what, the, what really is an error in translation. Rather than correct the translation and make it in what is written the truth, they have to make a religion around it, a tradition. So this is traditionally taught. The text divides generations into 14. Let me back up. The apparent contradiction is in the translation. Rather than research deeper, it's very simple. Even though most versions translate Joseph, the husband of Mary, it's really her father, Joseph. It's really her father, Joseph. Joseph, which now fits and adds up to 14, if it's her father. A woman can marry a man with the same name as her husband. The word translated husband can be also translated father. To use God's checks and balances, let's look at another verse that proves this is an error in translation. Joseph's father was not named Jacob. So you go back up in here to Matthew, and it calls Joseph's father Jacob. Nathan begat Jacob, and, ja and uh, Jacob begat Joseph. Well, you go over here to Luke chapter 3, verse 23, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. So there Luke says the father of Joseph is Heli. There's your checks and balances. You see, God doesn't leave you uh, without a verse that is written and plainly written. So the translation, Joseph, the husband of Mary, had a father named Heli. In Matthew 1 is not speaking of the husband of Mary, but her father which now adds up the lineage of Jesus to the 14th on his mother's side. Now you can believe the word, and don't you don't have to squeeze and guess. Radio, home of the ultimate knowledge of body, soul, and spirit, and unlimited music 24-7.
Be sure and visit our website at enlightenment-radio.com. There you can journey through the mystical voyage and also view our schedule of programming. Thank you for listening. So you have truth versus tradition. That's how you divide, rightly divide the word. These are just basic, simple principles of how to rightly divide the word to get to the truth. When you wrongly divide the word, you have tradition. And you associate tradition with man-made religion. That's why you have Baptists and Lutherans and Presbyterians. And that's why they, they all believe something different based on tradition. If they would go by what is written, we'd all be like-minded especially when it comes to the mystery. Who teaches that and even acknowledges that? That's amazing to me. I, I learned the mystery 40 year, for over 40 years ago, and I said, oh, that's fine, this is great. And I went, well, nobody's teaching this. I guess I'm going to have to. <laughs> yes, there were many believers, house to house. We, there were thousands of believers. We had fellowships in the homes. We taught the mystery, We taught the, which is our gospel, according to Paul and the church epistles, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the biggest mistake made was putting the four Gospels in the New Testament. It's fulfilling the Old Testament. It is really written to the Jews. And the day of Pentecost, the book of Acts, is the transition from the kingdom of heaven that came on the day of Pentecost. Remember I explained all this, uh, what was it, last week or two weeks ago, about where... The apostles received the Holy Spirit. Who received it was the 12 apostles. That was breaking tradition with truth. The tradition teaches they received 120 in an upper room. Well, we saw through that. Here's one about the Antichrist. Now, this is a big one. They all talk about the Antichrist. Where is he? Who is he? What's it going to happen? Let's get right to the point. There's no such thing as a single person who is called the Antichrist. False prophets, movies, books, church leaders, and the like use the term when referring to the one who rises to power in the book of Revelation and deceives the world. The word Antichrist is not even in the book of Revelation. Do you know that? <laughs> People say that, well, we're in the middle of the book of Revelation. They're looking for the Antichrist. That's not even in the book of Revelation. The events in the book of Revelation do not even begin until after the rapture. So why are they always speculating who it might be and from what country or what false religion will come out of the out of it? Christians won't even be here because it sells books and movies and makes for an exciting mystery, I guess. The source of the term Antichrist or Antichrist comes from 1 John and 2 John and is referring to people who deny Jesus Christ as the Messiah in the flesh. That's where it first the word is used, that's the only place it's used that I know of. Remember what Jesus Christ said? It is written. Well, what is written? It is written in 1 John. Little children, 1 John 2, 18 and 22. It is the latter times, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come, and even now are many Antichrists. So it's not one person. That's dispelled right here because it's written. We're going back to what's written, not what is tradition. Not what's just bandied about, what is spoken, what is just thrown out loosely. They went out from us, but they were not of us who lie and deny the truth. That Jesus Christ, that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God. He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Woo, woo. Yeah, that's when I point my finger at Trinitarians. They're Antichrist. They deny the Father and the Son. They have to have a threesome. 
They don't deny, they deny the father-son relationship and Jesus is the Messiah. They think he's God. So they're Antichrist. The source of the term Antichrist or Antichrist come from 1 John and is referring to people who deny that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that the Messiah in the flesh. To not distinguish and deny that Jesus Christ was God's son and the Messiah, whom he promised would come throughout the scriptures and confirmed the miracles and the resurrection from among the dead, Romans 1, 4, was considered Antichrist. It is a movement that was already in the world, already in the world 2,000 years ago, and not a figure singled out to mark the end times. 1 John 4, 3, 2, 4, 1 through 2. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. That's why we have this... We have a, one of the powers of the manifestations is the gift of discerning of spirit. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Here's how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Well, the Trinitarians don't confess Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. They confess God is come in the flesh, so they're antichrist. 1 John 4 through 3. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus is the Messiah come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. That's in 1 John 4 3. You have heard of it and should come, not he, heard of it, not he, should come and even now is it in the world. So it's a movement. It's like a people that did not believe that Jesus Christ. The Messiah came in the flesh. For many de uh, deceivers are entered into the world. Now I'm in 2 John 7. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus is the Messiah and came in the flesh. This is a deceiver and antichrist. There's a, that word is used again. Acts 4 through 26. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ or cleverly disguised and appear religious, but waters down with the tradition which slowly erodes the truth. One must know the genuine word as having the Spirit of God in Christ in you to discern truth from error. But the Spirit speaks expressly. I'm talking Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.1. Excuse me for jumping around without telling you the scripture. But the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of devils. Well, we know that. Yes, there is a wicked ruler whom Satan will raise up to deceive the world in the future, but not until the light is removed. Christians, God's children, the rapture, and the son of perdition be revealed and worshiped as God. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2.2. He's called the son of perdition, and that doesn't happen till after our gathering together or the quickening. We're taken out of this world. The light is removed. That gives the darkness the chance to make its move because what's holding back the darkness now is us, the light, the children of light. Until then, these false prophets and so-called Bible commentators look for a man they call the Antichrist. Well, <laughs> that's false teaching. That's just plain and simple. When all this time it is not a man and it is already in the world, they conveniently change the dates, times, and place to accommodate their false predictions, usually based on the latest headlines and not the word of God or the revelation of true prophecy. Second Peter 2.1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. How simple is it, people? It, just to go by what is written and not tradition. I've got one more, and this is a big one. The biggest one that everybody has it in their mind, every religion, every church, they all have it in their mind that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years, Right? Is that truth? Is it written? Where is that written? Where is it written that his ministry was three and a half years? It's not written anywhere. So why do we believe that? Why do we believe 
Is that the truth or is that tradition? Jesus' ministry was approximately one year, not three. Let's go into Let's dive into this and unpack it, rightly divide it, and see how we get the one year and three and a half years mixed up. Jesus came to Nazareth, went to the synagogue, and stood up to read. He found a place where it was written. Well, you roll out these scrolls. They don't have chapters and paragraphs and verses. So Jesus Christ must have been at, he must have been studying those scrolls since a long time. He was looking, seeing, finding himself in there. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he did anoint me to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, right there, that should have stood out like a sore thumb. The acceptable year of the Lord. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. And then he sets down the scroll. Tradition teaches that the records in the Gospels cover a period of three and a half years from his baptism to his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. This is primarily based on the number of Passover feasts mentioned and writings after the 4th century, okay? So you have one Passover per year. All these major feasts, there's three major feasts in Jerusalem, and traditionally, or by the law, they men had to attend. This is primarily based on the number of Passover feasts mentioned in writings in the 4th century. Once tradition creeps in and is taught as truth, Efforts are made to actually change what is written to correspond with the tradition. This is a big one, people. It be, this tradition became so strong, they actually had to go around and change the word to fit the tradition. That's scary. Matthew 15, why do you transgress the word of God with your tradition? Remember? That is what happened primarily in the book of John that has kept this myth from being uncovered. Mistranslations, misinterpretations are usually at the root in teaching error. In Matthew and Mark, there's only mentions of the Passover. In Matthew and Mark, there's only mention of the Passover during the crucifixion. Okay? There's only one Passover in those two books. In Luke, there is a Passover mentioned when he is 12 and one at his crucifixion. So... Here we are again. There's only one at, well, he's an adult. According to these Gospels, the events between his baptism and crucifixion, there was only one Passover mentioned, making it, period, less than two years, and certainly not three. In John, there is more detail given regarding the Judean feasts, which help us in determining the period of time. God's Word always provides checks and balances for those who want to know the truth rather than rely on tradition. Remember that. If you're really seeking the truth, then ferret it out. I'm teaching you keys and principles of how to ferret it out. You go by checks and balances. Well, who is the name of Joseph's father was not Jacob? You go to the next chapter and it says it was Heli. Okay, so in John... 2.13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Well, why did he go? There's one case, one verse, where it says Jesus went to this Passover. That was right after his baptism. This is the first Passover mentioned in John. Jesus went to Jerusalem because the Passover was one of three feasts where all males were required to attend according to Mosaic law. This Passover would have occurred in April, and Jesus did as required by law and went to Jerusalem where the feast was held. John 5.1, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this indicates a notation of time. After the Passover and events preceding this verse, there came another feast, and Jesus went to Jerusalem to attend. The second required feast, to attend would have been the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost as we know today. This second, this occurred 50 days after the Passover and was a celebration of the first fruits of harvest. Fascinating that the first fruits was the day of Pentecost. God gathered the fruits and all those who believed and 
became of the body of Christ. This is not a Passover feast year. Oh, wait, wait a minute. This, this occurred 50 days after the Passover and was a celebration of the first harvest. The time now would have been the end of May and the first June, first of June of the same year. This is not a Passover feast a year later, for it would have said specifically Passover. Now in John 6, 1, 4, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus went up into a mountain, and the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. I believe John was trying to establish a chronological order by referring to after these things. Jesus did not go to Jerusalem, but was in Galilee and in the mountain. A Jewish feast that would have occurred next in chronological order without requiring rules, males. <laughs> oh, I got to get through glasses one of these days. Okay. Chronological order without requiring males to be there would have been the memorial of the blowing of the trumpets, which took place on the 20 and 21st of September. Had this been a Passover, Jesus would have gone to Jerusalem. Secondly, there's no indication that a year had passed. Quite the opposite. The events would indicate a brief period of time had passed. So why is Passover here in the King James? It is an error in translation. It is an error in translation. A few Greek manuscripts omit John 6, 4 entirely. Later, it crept into the writings of the church fathers from the 4th century and became traditionally added by the scribes in later manuscripts. The result was adding a year to Christ's ministry. If we use God's checks and balances, then the omission that Jesus went to Jerusalem would eliminate this being a Passover. Assuming that John does mention a feast in the verse and is chronologically narrating the miraculous ministry of Jesus Christ, then the blowing of trumpet fits and flows harmoniously. So, so far we only have one Passover. And that's the one he went to after his baptism. I continue. After these things, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near. Jesus told his disciples, you go up to the feast, Jerusalem, without me, and I will meet you there. When his brethren were gone up, he then, he also followed to Jerusalem the feast, not openly, but in secret. This is now the third feast mentioned in John that required attendance in the order of occurrence. The Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day event celebrating the final harvest and would have taken place in early October that same year. Jesus and his disciples attended even though his life was now under threat. John 10, 22, and it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. Again, John pointing out the place and time remaining in chronological order, winter would be accurate as this feast occurred in late December. Now, John eleven fifty five, and the Jews passed over was near, and many came out of the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now, this is the last or the final Passover, the second one. Okay, now we're at the second one translated accurately. Came out of the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This is the last or second Passover that would appear in John and occurred during the week of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. He was the Passover lamb that year. This is the second one. From Passover to Passover is one year. Jesus was baptized, John 1, 26 through 33, before the first recorded Passover in John 2, and was on the earth 40 days after his resurrection, according to Acts 1, 3. This would make a period of time approximately one year. However, his actual ministry did not begin at his baptism, nor end at his ascension. There is a remarkable verse in God's word that has been mainly quoted and viewed as defining what his ministry was. This was overshadowed the length of time of his ministry when it started. And it came to Nazareth, this is Luke 4, 16 through 21, 
And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the scroll of Isaiah. This is where we started. And when he opened the scroll, he found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me, because he has anointed me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, and he closed the scroll. He gave it back to the priest, and he sat down, and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now hear this. The acceptable year of the Lord. This day is the scripture fulfilled. The work of God and his son, Jesus Christ, sent to fulfill the scripture is called the acceptable year of the Lord. When Jesus announced this in the synagogue, it was shortly before or after the Feast of Weeks, the day of Pentecost, mentioned in John 5 in the after John the Baptist was imprisoned, Matthew 4, 12, 13, and 17. Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee, leaving Nazareth, where he announced his ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so now after John was in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Before it was John who preached the coming of the kingdom of God was near. Now that John was in prison, Jesus preached the kingdom of God was at hand. For John had stated he must increase, but I must decrease. That's John 3.30. Jesus began his ministry of preaching and healing and proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord around the day of Pentecost. When did the kingdom of God come and become available as promised? On the day of Pentecost, the following year. How marvelous, from Pentecost, when Jesus officially began his ministry to Pentecost, when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came, making available, born again from above, entering the kingdom of God was exactly one year, the acceptable year of the Lord. We are never told again Never again in the book of Acts are we to look and seek for the kingdom of God, for it was near and came as promised on the day of Pentecost. Because of what God had accomplished through Jesus Christ, his preaching, healing, and also most importantly, his sacrifice as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world, our salvation and eternal life was made available through the crucifixion and resurrection, his ascension and final fulfillment of the coming of the kingdom of God. In John 1, 29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The sacrificial lamb is the Passover feast to be a male of the lamb of the first year. Did you know that? It had to be a lamb of the first year. So there's another convincing truth that makes his ministry one year. Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God, was of the first year of his public ministry. Luke 3, 23, Luke himself began to be about 30 years of age. The acceptable year of the Lord and of the lamb, the first year, how miraculous a year it was. It changed the world forever. It was one year and not three. He died at 30 and not 33. Because they do err, not knowing the scriptures, teaching for the word of God, the tradition of men. Here we go again, back to Matthew. Now here's, maybe it's just a, hard to fathom all this happening such a short period of time as John. And there are many other things which Jesus did. If they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books which should be written. That's John 21. If you open the book of Isaiah, he stopped. He stopped. He was reading from Isaiah because the next verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus could not say that this was the acceptable year of the Lord 
this day is this fulfilled, but, and also read the day of vengeance of our God. He rightly divided the word. He stopped right where it said, and the day of vengeance of our God, because the day of vengeance of our God is in Revelation. He wasn't coming to bring in and herald the vengeance of God. So he stopped reading. He could not say and fully read that verse in Isaiah, the acceptable year of the Lord. And I'm sorry I don't have that verse from Isaiah. It's in my, uh, it's in my footnotes. If you want to read these, traditions versus truth, a lot of them on, is it the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit Social Club, not the Holy Spirit. If you go to the whole, if you go to Holy Spirit Social Club, you can read all these. What happened was in Isaiah, it read, "And the day of vengeance of our Lord." This day is. If he would have sat down after that, he could not have said that because he was not fulfilling it. He rightly divided the word. He knew he wasn't there to fulfill that scripture. Believers. It's a wonderful thing to know the truth versus tradition. It really is. It's empowering. And to know that Jesus Christ and God gave us checks and balances. He gave us how things were used before, like say, well, what was Paul's thorn in the flesh? People guess. Usually a preacher will guess, well, Paul's thorn in the flesh was uh, diabetes, or Paul's flesh thorn in the flesh was, you know, womanizing. Whatever the preacher's problem was, well, it was what he names Paul's thorn in the flesh is. But if you go back to throughout history in the Bible, how it's used before, it's always people. People were Paul's thorn in the flesh. It was the Jews who were always after him. So Paul's thorn in the flesh was people. It was Jews. If it's something that's used before. Well, we ran over just a little bit. I got a song I want to end with. This is going to be interesting. It also says in a place in the word that God gives us a sweet smelling savor, that God has fragranced us <laughs> as a sweet smelling savior. Thanks for bearing with me this morning. Thanks for bearing with me this evening and where you are and learning and going through the scriptures so we know how the difference between truth and tradition. It's all over. It's basically the whole system is based on truth or tradition. And it's my favorite topic to rightly divide the word and discern truth from error. This has been your host, Misty Guide. This has been the Tea Party. God bless you all. I love you all. I wish I could name you all by your names. Stay faithful to the mystery. Stay faithful. That's what God honors is a faithful steward. You know what God wants of you? Only two things. To rightly divide the word, you have truth, and to worship him only, one God only. That's all that is expected of us. People, it's so simple. But man wants to come along. You know, the first thing he, Satan tempted Jesus Christ was, if you're really the son of God. Don't sometimes we sit down and go, man, am I really a son of God? Don't let Satan talk you out of it. Don't let him talk you out of what is written, what is the truth. Jesus Christ said, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Well, don't tempt me, Satan. I know I'm a son of God. And don't tempt my people, our fellowship, and our believers. Don't trick them out of anything. Thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, for our fellowship, for this word being spread, and our movement become attract people who are seeking the truth, not tradition. God bless you. This has been your host, Mystic Guide. From Enlightenment Radio, God bless you, Tea Party. I love you.
connect.